Okay, so here we go. Matthew chapter 9, picking up in verse 14. I'll just read this, and we will just start jumping in here. Verse 14 says this. Then John's disciples came and asked him, that's Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and this section of the Math, uh, Matthew's Gospel that we're in, uh, Jesus is been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's come off of the mountain. He's been hanging out with people. He's been putting on display what it looks like when the kingdom comes to bear. And there's been, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, where Matthew's really specifically trying to make a point for us whereby he shows us what it looks like when the kingdom comes to bear, Matthew's done some really intentional things to make a couple of big points. And a lot of times when gospel writers were writing, the way that they would tell stories, the position they would put stories, some of the nuance they would add to the story or, or include in the story or not include in the story, they're often using structure as a means to make a point. And so here we have a situation where uh, Jesus has John's disciples come to him and ask him a question. Now, what's interesting in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, there's been four times where Jesus has been questioned, or this is the fourth time, I should say, so three other times. If you go back to Matthew chapter 8, a number of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus calming the storm. And in that, uh, in, in that incident, as Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples came to Jesus. They wanted him to calm the storm. He calmed the storm, and they said, who, who is this man? Like, who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? Uh, a little bit later, the scribes come to Jesus after he heals uh, the paralytic, and they say to him, they don't actually ask him a question, but they accuse him of blasphemy. They say, who is this blasphemer? Like, like he's forgiving sins. Who, what gives him the authority to forgive sins? Uh, and then I believe it was last week where Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. The, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they say, uh, who is this man who eats with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what Matthew's trying to show us here is that people don't really understand who Jesus is. Like, they have this idea in their mind of who he is, but they don't really understand. And then this morning, we see that John's disciples come, and they ask Jesus a question. We fast, John's disciples. The Pharisees fast. We do this often. But your disciples don't fast. And it's probably worth noting here, just because you might not understand where John's disciples fit. John loved Jesus. Right? We see this in the ministry of John the Baptist where he is the forerunner for Jesus. He, he, he submitted to Jesus. He loved Jesus. He recognized who Jesus was. He said Jesus' sandals, he was unfit to even untie those sandals because he loved them. But John's in prison, and now what's happened is his disciples have kind of forgotten the teachings of John, and they've pitted themselves against Jesus' disciples and in line with the Pharisees. And so we got these people coming to Jesus, and they're trying to figure out who he is. And Jesus doesn't really make it easy on them because he doesn't ever give them a straight answer. He usually answers their question with a question, which is like super annoying when people do that. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, you're trying to hem me into a box, but I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to just sit here and let you decide who I am. And here, here's what's interesting. If you go through Matthew chapter 8 and 9, you've got all these people, right? You've got these religious people. You've got the disciples, people who've been following Jesus. You have the scribes. These are the guys that like interpreted the law. You have the Pharisees. These are the Bible teachers, the guys who memorized the Old Testament. Here you have John's disciples. These were the people who, who longed for the nation of Israel to come and repent back to God. And they don't understand who Jesus is. They can't figure him out. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, who, who is the one group who seems to get it? It's the tax collectors and the sinners. It's the least likely people who understand who Jesus is. What's Matthew trying to show us here? 
he's trying to show us that there's this reality that we have to wrestle with where Jesus comes in and he blows up our categories. We think we understand who he is. We, we think we can put him in a box. We think we can hem him into a corner. We think we understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a part of his church, what it means to follow him, what it means to, to be a part of his family. But he comes in and he completely blows up all of those categories. You say, you, you don't get it. You, you don't understand. And, and here's just a word of caution to us. I mean, if you're here this morning and, and there's a sense in you that you feel like you have this all figured out, you feel like you understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it, what it looks like to, to be one of his disciples, you totally get it. You, you, you just, you've arrived. If you feel like you've arrived, this is a harsh warning. What Matthew is saying here is all the people who thought they understood how God works, the way he's going to work, what he's going to do, how he's going to appear, in the end, those are the ones who didn't get it. And it was the broken, it was the lost, it was the outcast, it was the misfit, it was the irreligious. Those, those are the ones who, who actually understood Jesus. Those are the ones who actually wanted to be around him. And again, we keep coming back to this, but, but it, it, I think this is what Matthew wants us to do. If you, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and you start working your way through the Beatitudes. And the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is preaching on the constitution of the kingdom, the way his kingdom is going to come, and the way his kingdom is going to look. What are the precepts of his kingdom? What, is it, what are the prerequisites of his kingdom? What is the kingdom of God, the place where Jesus has ultimate rule, reign, and authority? What's it look like? And you go through the Beatitudes, which are the gateway or the entryway into the kingdom. I mean, some of the things he says there, I mean, it's just like, it's so obvious that this is the way it is, but yet we don't seem to get it because he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And he keeps coming back, he keeps coming back to this idea that in order to actually understand who Jesus is, you have to get to this place where you recognize that you are broken. It's all the people who think that they have their, this is what my mom used to say, okay? This isn't a criticism, this is a Bridgetism, okay? Shout out to my moms. All the people who think they have their poop in a group. Those are the ones that don't get it. Because it might be in a group, but it's still poop, right? You can put sprinkles on it, but that doesn't make it a cupcake. It still stinks. And what Matthew wants you to see is that in order to understand who Jesus is, in order to come to him, to understand him, to receive him, to get him, you have to be in this place where you humbly recognize that you are broken and you desperately need him. It's a prerequisite. But don't miss the question. Let's dive into the question here. John's disciples come. They ask Jesus. Here's the question they ask him. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, uh, we've done a lot of teaching uh, earlier this fall. We did a lot of teaching on fasting. So I'm not going to go into any detail on fasting. And actually, as a church, we've been doing uh, monthly days of fasting. And just a quick shout out. There's going to be some info on the screen here. Mark this on your calendar. We have another one coming up. It's Tuesday, April 23rd. And our invitation as a church family is to come together and uh, to fast or to abstain from, f from food 
from sunup to sundown. And then what we've been doing is we've been breaking the fast together by coming together for just one hour of worship and prayer. And our hope as we do this as a church family is, and we'll see this in the text this morning, it's just our way of like putting ourselves in a position whereby we are saying, God, we, we hunger and thirst for you. We long for you. We, we, can't, we can't wait for you to come, and we want you to work in our city. And so I'd encourage you to join us. They've been rich times of worship, rich times of prayer. Uh, God's been doing great work. We've had lots of people coming out. And so we meet at the church office. The address is on the screen. It's just uh, down the road. But come and participate in that. But I'm not going to teach on fasting because we've been doing a lot of teaching on fasting. You can go online, uh, and you can, uh, you can check out what we've been saying about fasting and how it works and how we teach on it here at West Village. You can see all that on our website. But... But what I want you to see here, I want you to notice what the Pharisees, or what John's disciples rather, asked Jesus, and that is we fast, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. And so uh, here's how fasting would work uh, for, for these guys. They would, in the Old Testament law, there was, uh, there was one day of prescribed fasting, and it was on the Day of Atonement. This was, the Day of Atonement uh, was the day where the entire nation of Israel would come together uh, they would come to the temple. They would make sacrifices to God, uh, seeking atonement, seeking the forgiveness of sin. And it was on that day that they would fast. It was on that day that they would abstain from food. And that was just like their way. It was a, a solemn day. It was a day of lament. It was a day of seeking after God. And, and really, ultimately, what they were doing, and they would continue to fast on the, the day of atonement. And the reason for that is because the nation of Israel was longing for a Messiah. Uh, they were longing for the day where they no longer had to make sacrifices to idols, or sorry, sacrifices to God. They were longing for the day where they would no longer have to uh, make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin because in the Old Testament it was prophesied that God would send a rescuer who would redeem Israel. And so there was this sense in John's disciples, in the Pharisees, that they were fasting because the intent of God's law was that they would fast so that they would long for the presence of God. But here's what happened, and this is what often happens. And one of the subplots of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus versus religion. It's Jesus versus the Pharisees. Oftentimes, what can happen is our religious hearts get in the way of God's good intent. And so you notice what the Pharisees say here. Look at this. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often? Like We do this a lot your disciples. They don't fast. You know, another way, to, another way to read this would be, how come we're so awesome and your disciples aren't as awesome as we are? Let me just put a word of caution out to you. If you ever have somebody come to you and say something like this, how come your life doesn't look as good as my life? How come your religious obedience isn't as good as my religious obedience? You're dealing with a Pharisee. You're dealing with a religious person. If you ever feel like, how come they can't get their stuff together? Like I got my stuff together. How come they can't figure this out? How come I'm having this conversation with them again? You know, if you're in DNA with somebody, you're like, oh my gosh, every single time we meet, this is your issue. How come you can't figure this out? This is a religious spirit. You see, because what ended up happening was John's disciples, the Pharisees, they took something good that God intended to use as a means to long for his presence, and they added to it. So they went from fasting once a year to fasting twice a week. 
the Pharisees would fast every, uh, every Monday and every Thursday. And if you remember in Matthew chapter 6, back in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching on fasting, he actually critiques the Pharisees, not just for fasting, but for how they fast. Because when they would fast, they would cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They would look so, you know, like, they would just look, have this look, this appearance of, like, lament and this overly pious look, trying to make everyone aware of the fact that they were fasting. And look, don't you feel so bad for me because I'm, I'm starving and I'm hungry hungry and I'm so holy and why aren't you like me? You should fast as much as I fast. You should be as good as I am. Why do you do that? Why do you listen to this? Why do you go there? Why aren't you more like me? And they took something good that God intended to be used for his glory, for his people to pursue him, and they made it into something external. They made it into a religious practice whereby if you didn't do it the way that they did it, you weren't as good as them. It became a checkbox. This is why in Matthew chapter 22, when we get there in a while, Jesus comes against the Pharisees, and this is his ultimate critique of them. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. Because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, John's disciples, they had taken something that God intended to be used for his glory, for for his people to connect with him, and they turned it into a religious practice. They had turned it into something that made them look good on the outside while on the inside they didn't actually long for God. In fact, to the degree that, like, think about the irony of what Matthew's saying here. He's saying they were called to fast because they were longing for the day that the Messiah would come and absolve them of their guilt and forgive them of their sins once and for all. And who do they come to and ask why the disciples don't fast? The answer is always Jesus. It's church, right? They come to Jesus. So, so just don't miss the irony here. They're fasting. When's the Messiah going to come? When's he going to come and forgive us of our sins? When's he going to come and, and rescue and redeem God's people? And they're looking at Jesus. He's the Messiah. They don't even recognize him. Why? Because they had turned this good thing into a religious practice. So look at Jesus' answer to their question. Verse 15, he says this, How can guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus gets asked a question, and in typical Jesus fashion, does not answer the question directly, but he answers it with parable. He answers it by asking a question. And the rest of these verses, Jesus is going to give them illustrations that are going to articulate what the bigger point he's trying to make here in the text, and that is that he is the one who's going to come and rescue and redeem them from their sins. And so look at how he starts, verse 15, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? In other words, you're fasting because you're longing for the Messiah to come. Guess what? I'm the Messiah. I'm right here. And Jesus, he uses this image or this picture, this analogy that is used all throughout Scripture to describe the relationship of God with his people. And this is the image of a bride and a bridegroom. So, so all throughout Scripture, one of the grand images, one of the meta-narratives that is used to describe the way that God interacts with his people is that he is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can go right to the end. It's like the, 
the, the second last or third last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter uh, 19, should also be up on the screen. And this is what Jesus, uh, or John rather, records about what eternity is going to look like. And look at what he says here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like loud pearls of thunder, peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linens, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And so here in Revelation 19, we get this picture of what eternity is going to look like. And what does it look like? It looks like the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 9, this picture where God and his people are reunited. So so what's Jesus' point here? Fasting was all about longing. Fasting was all about waiting. Jesus is saying, I am the one who's come to rescue and redeem. I am the one who's come to rescue and redeem God's people from their sins. I am the one who's come to lay down his life so people can be forgiven. So why would my disciples fast? Right? You know, you ever go to a wedding and you bump into the guy who, he's not like a bad guy, but, or gal, usually these are guys, but like all he wants to talk about is politics, Right? He wants to talk about carbon tax and why Donald Trump is the Antichrist or why Justin Trudeau is the Antichrist, pipelines. And you're like, man, we're at a wedding. Like, this isn't a time to complain. This is a time to celebrate. We, we should be partying. This isn't a time for fasting, Jesus is saying. This is a time for feasting. Why? Because the bride and the groom are coming together. You, you don't want to go to a wedding and complain. You don't want to go to a wedding and and stifle the vibe. You want to celebrate. And that's what Jesus is saying. My disciples don't fast. They don't fast because the bride and the bridegroom are being reunited. God's people are here. The king has come. The kingdom of God is being inaugurated, and this is supposed to be a party. And so Jesus is saying his disciples should be the kind of people who are happy, who are celebratory. One of the things we talk about at West Village is, as a church, we, want, we think that the church should be the most celebratory people on planet Earth. Why? Because we have the most to celebrate. I mean, we, we have forgiveness of sins. We have the Spirit of God. We have the promise that one day we will be reunited with Christ. And so how could we be mopey? How could we be complainy? I mean, I don't want to belabor this, but there's this reality, I think, at times where we forget all that we've been given by God. And, and I mean, if you just start to roll through many Christians' social media feed, what, what are you going to see? Are they, are they celebratory people? I mean, I see people on there, and the question I would ask when I see some of the things that they're sharing and some of the posts that they're making, it's like, is your hope in Jesus or is your hope in the government? Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be involved in politics and we shouldn't have opinions, but a lot of times what can happen is we just reinforce this bad impression of the church 
that we're mopey, we're complainy, we're whiny, that we forget that our hope is in heaven and we think that somehow our hope is here on earth. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm with my disciples. So why would they fast? Friends, we have, there's this, we're going to see this in just a second. There's this already but not yet reality to the kingdom of God where we have the spirit of God in us. God's presence is with us. Shouldn't that bring some joy to our hearts? Shouldn't people look at the church and say, you know, I might not believe what they believe. In fact, I'm offended by what they believe. But I want to be around those people. There's something about them that causes me joy. I'm compelled. I want to be in their presence. Why? Because we're a foretaste of the reality of Revelation chapter 19, that one day we will be reunited with our bridegroom. And so Christians are called to be a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. And so the question we have to ask is, are our, our lives a foretaste? When people look at us, when they, when they see how we live, when they, when they watch what we do with our time, with our money, with our family, with our community, is it a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven? Are we bringing the better wine to the party, or are we just adding to the white noise, to the division, to the, to the negativity, to the corruption, to the brokenness that is our world? Jesus is saying, when I am with my disciples, it's not a time for fasting, but rather a time for feasting. But then look at what he says in the second half of verse 15. He says, that, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus says, right now, they are happy, but the time is coming where I'm going to be taken away from them. And when I am taken away from them, they will fast. Now, that phrase that Matthew uses to describe Jesus being taken away from his disciples, in the English, it literally says taken from them. It, it actually means, like, another way you could translate this would be, like, pulled away. And there's sort of a violent connotation to what Jesus is talking about. This is a foreshadowing of where the gospel of Matthew is going, which is ultimately to the cross. See, what Jesus is talking about here is there's a day coming. I'm with my disciples right now, but there's a day coming where, where I'm not going to be with them anymore, where I'm going to be literally pulled away, where I'm going to be violently taken from them, where I'm going to go to the cross, where I'm going to lay down my life, where I am going to be gone. Now, just remember the context and what's happening when Jesus makes this statement. Everybody that would have heard him say that would have understood he, he was talking about a day where he is going to be dead. He's going to be gone. He's going to be removed. He's going to be taken away. Now, now again, remember, he, he's just been up on the mountain. He'd just been preaching about the kingdom of God. He'd just been calling in Matthew chapter 4, come, follow me, right? Come and repent because the kingdom of God is here. He's been preaching about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 8 and 9, he's been healing people. He's been calming storms. He's been casting out demons. So everyone's watching all this. They're seeing that Jesus is the inauguration of the kingdom. They're getting a glimpse of it. But in their mind, they have this picture of what the king, what the Messiah is supposed to look like. And their version of a Messiah was one who, who was more of a geopolitical leader rather than the Messiah that Jesus was saying that he was going to be. Their version of a Messiah was one that was going to come and restore the nation of Israel back to prominence. He was going to defeat the Romans who had rule over the nation of Israel, and he was going to take the nation of Israel and place them back in the center of the historical narrative geopolitically. 
And here's Jesus, and he says, the day is coming where I am going to die. I'm going to be taken away. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to lay down my life. In other words, my kingdom is different than the kingdom that you're envisioning. Uh, uh, My kingship, my rule and reign is different than the kind of king and the kind of rule and reign that you're envisioning. And we have to wrestle with this reality. I mean, this is really what Matthew's trying to articulate through this entire story here in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is that Jesus, he completely blows up our categories for what we think it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we view Jesus. Some of us come at Jesus and we have these ideas in our mind, these religious pictures in our mind of what it means to follow him. That there's an external way that we have to look and behave and perform in order to actually be a follower of Jesus. That's what John's disciples had when they came at him. That's what the Pharisees had. That's what the scribes had. And what Matthew's trying to say is you need to shed these things. You need to shed your preconceived ideas and notions of what it means, what it means to follow Jesus. Some of us have different preconceived notions and ideas. We, we have, you know, we, we maybe have lived next to a Christian who uh, wasn't very nice. And so we have this picture in our mind of what it means to follow Jesus that, that has been informed by that. Or maybe we've had a church experience and it was a bad experience. It wasn't a good experience, but it was a bad experience. Or, or maybe you've had interactions online with Christians who, who seem like they're always out just to pick a fight for the sake of picking a fight. And so that is shaping, it's clouding your idea of what it means to follow Jesus. What Jesus is trying to do is cut through all that noise and he's trying to blow up those categories. And what he's trying to say is, I'm not like you think I am. Remember, who are the only people that got Jesus so far in Matthew chapter 8 and 9? The tax collectors and the sinners. And so what Jesus is saying is like this, this thing that you have in your mind, and your heart, it needs to die for you to be able to come to me. But there's another thing that Jesus is saying here, and this is, I think, prudent for us as a church. He's saying that there's this reality to the kingdom of God that it's already but not yet. It's already in the sense that he has come. Jesus has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom. But it's not yet in the sense that it hasn't been fully realized. That Revelation 19 is obviously not the reality that we live in. We have glimmers of Revelation chapter 19. Jesus in his kindness and his grace, he's given us the spirit. And the spirit testifies to our heart that God is good, that Jesus loves us, that he laid his life down for us. And we experience these moments when we worship and when we sing, we experience the already of the kingdom. That's why some of you raise your hands when you worship. That's why some of you, you might not be hand raisers, but you might be so compelled that you actually put your phone away during worship. Like, I'm going to put this down for three and a half minutes because this is a good song. That's the kingdom of God breaking into your life. That's why he's given us the church. When you you have this encounter with the people of God, and and the church is already, but not yet as well, okay, so it's not perfect, but you have these these slivers, these moments with the church where, where you are blessed, where you bless someone, where you share a meal, where you experience, like, not fellowship in the sense of, like, you know, potluck down the hall 
in the fellowship hall and somebody brings the cheesy potatoes and you make awkward conversation for an hour and then you go home. But like deep fellowship where your hearts are bound together with another human being to the degree that you aren't related to them but you couldn't imagine living life without them. This is the kingdom of God breaking in. And he's given us these things to to remind us of the reality of the kingdom. That's the already, but there's a not yet. There's a not yet with the kingdom, and the not yet is that this is still a broken world. We, we still experience hardship. We still experience death. We still experience sickness. We still experience brokenness. Our marriages aren't where they should be. Our relationships with our kids might be broken. People disappoint us. We disappoint other people. This is the not yet of the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is when I'm taken away, my people will fast. That's when they will fast. Why? Because they will long for Revelation chapter 19. They will long for the day that Jesus comes again. They will long for the day where there's no more sadness, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sickness, there's no more brokenness, where everything is restored, where everything is made new. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says that we quote often, where everything sad comes untrue. So the question that Jesus would ask of us in light of this text in this moment is, do you long for that? Do you long for it? Another way to ask the question in light of the text, in light of what Jesus is saying, in light of the context that John's disciples came and asked Jesus, do you fast? Fasting doesn't produce longing, but longing produces fasting. And and I'm not going to make statements of condemnation. I'm just merely going to ask questions and the Spirit of God and you can sort this out. But could it be that you don't fast because you don't long? Could it be that you don't fast from the things of this world because you don't long for the things of the kingdom? And could it be the reason you don't long for the kingdom is because you love the things of the world. Could it be that you're so distracted by all the noise that is our world, and there are many examples of this that I could point to, that you have forgotten that this world is not your home, that you are citizens of the kingdom of God, Because you've forgotten, you do not long. You do not long to be with Jesus. You do not long to spend time with Jesus. You do not long to see people meet Jesus. You do not long for the things in our world that are broken. You don't long for those to be made right. It'd be nice, right? It'd be nice. It'd be nice. There's a difference between it'd be nice and come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The time will come 
the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. And then Jesus changes gears a little bit. And these are seemingly random parables, but I think they fit in with the larger point that Matthew is trying to make in these verses and in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So Jesus gives two more illustrations. So we have the bride and the bridegroom. That's one illustration of why his disciples don't fast. And then there's these two other illustrations he uses, and they're interesting. Verse 16, no one sews a patch from unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment without making the tear, or with... Uh, I'm sorry, making the tear worse, okay? So this is like obviously Jesus, right? This is like Home Act 101. Like who doesn't know that, right? Everybody knows all about sewing and stuff. Let me explain this to you because I obviously know a lot about home economics. So the point that Jesus is making here, a couple of you know me and know that that is very far from the truth. So Jesus is saying if you take a new piece of cloth and you use that new piece of cloth to uh, patch a hole on an old piece of cloth, when you wash it and the new piece of cloth shrinks and the old piece of cloth doesn't, it's going to tear and you're going to make the hole even worse. And then he goes on, uses another analogy. I'll come back and explain both of these because it just seems like Jesus maybe forgot to take his meds today or something. These seem random. Verse 17, that was just a joke. Sorry if that was offensive. Verse 17, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So again, here's an analogy or a parable or an illustration that Jesus gives us. The way that they would, uh, they would carry wine is they would take an animal. It's a little bit graphic. Children, cover your ears. They cut the legs off. Actually, you guys grew up on a farm. You're fine. Cut the legs off gut the thing, turn it inside out, tan the skin, and then they would pour wine. They'd cut a hole in the top, and they'd pour wine. It was basically like a really cool first century water bottle. That's what we got there, okay? And, and so what would happen is, though, over time, these wine skins would get old. They would get, like, kind of cracked, and the skin would get tight, and you would pour new wine into the old wine skin, and the wine would ferment, and what would happen is it would burst. The wine skin would burst, and it would be destroyed. It would be discarded so would the wine. So again, what's Jesus' point? This seems random. Here's his point. Do not miss this. You cannot add Jesus to what already exists. See, the Pharisees come to Jesus, the scribes come to Jesus, John's disciples come to Jesus, and basically their questions are like, how come you aren't like we think you are supposed to be? And Jesus says, because I'm doing something completely different. You have a religious way of trying to connect with God. You have an external way of trying to connect to God. You have a way of connecting with God that says if you look a certain way, if you do certain things, if you follow certain practices, that you can connect with God. And here's what Jesus is saying. you got to ditch that. You can't add me to your life. You have to completely get rid of that. Now, I want to be clear what I'm not saying. What Jesus is not saying is ditch the Old Testament. This has become very in vogue in the church, right? There's there's a lot of church leaders right now that are talking about we need to unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount where he started many of his precepts and teachings in the Sermon on the Mount with you have heard it said. And what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament. What Jesus is condemning is not the Old Testament, not the teaching of the law, not God's Uh, God's way of connecting with people in the Old Testament. 
What he is condemning is the way that the religious leaders and the teachers of the law had distorted God's commands and the ways that God intended to connect with his people. They've distorted it to make it be something external. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not concerned with the external, I'm concerned with the heart. And so Jesus' point here is you can't just come to him and add him to your already awesome life. This is a complete new thing that he is doing. He wants to completely blow up every category and every thought you have about what it means to follow Jesus. And you can't just fit him into a box because the box has to die. This isn't like a little house reno. This is a teardown. A few weeks ago, I went back to Ontario. And my wife and I bought a property back there like 11 years ago. I went back there for a family funeral. And I thought, well, I'm going to go see my property because I've only seen it one other time. I bought it sight unseen. don't know, necessarily recommend that. And I never see it. So I went back to Ontario and I, I got my property manager who I've never met. There's a whole bunch of bad things about this story. And him and me and a real estate agent, we walked through the place. And this was like, it was bad. Like, it was like, don't take the shoes off. Like, like I'm not kidding. Knock on the door, 10 minutes, no one answers. Guy comes to the door, two massive dogs, like, at the door. <laughs> and, like, big, ugly, frothy at the mouth, like, stay in the car, kids, dogs at the door. They leave. They look, like, super not awesome-looking people. Like, not, not, I don't know how else to say it. Anyway, we walk in, and it reeks like pot. Like, I'm pretty sure they had just finished smoking pot, growing pot. I don't know, whatever you do with that stuff. In the kitchen, there's a hole in the ceiling below the bathroom, and there's an exposed pipe, and there's a bag hanging from the pipe. I'm like, what is that? It's full of water. The pipe's leaking, and they put a cloth bag there to catch the water. That's not good. There's holes in the wall. It's just a disaster. And I walk out, and I put my hand on my forehead, I said, I'm a slumlord. This is bad. This is really bad. Now, I was talking to a real estate agent. He came through the house with us, and there was a possibility that we were interested in selling until I walked through it. And I'm like, so Pete, what do you think? And he was quiet, right? He was super quiet. He just wanted to sit in this moment. Now, if I had said to him, I feel like if we could just put a little backsplash in the bathroom, a little ensuite bathroom downstairs, this place would be ready to go. He, he would have said, no, you're a moron. We've got to knock the whole thing down. We've got to strip it down and start from ground zero. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't add him to your life like a backsplash. We need to tear down the whole house. It, it's worse than my rental in London. Like, we got to go down to the foundation. We got to dig up the foundation and we got to start from ground zero and rebuild the whole house. Because you're a disaster. And to think that you could just add some Jesus, some religious practice to your life and that that is going to clean you up, then you are the scribes, you are the Pharisees, you are John's disciples. We need to start all over. 
Some, some of you, and I hear this a lot, you know, like, I'm just not a practicing Christian. What does that mean? It means like, well, I'm just going to start practicing Christianity. Like, I'm, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start going to Bible study. I'm going to go to community group. I'm going to jump through the churchy hoops and look at, voila, I'm a Christian. And what Jesus is saying is that's not how this thing works. You cannot add me to your already awesome life. You have to recognize that your life is a disaster, that you are broken, and that you are in desperate need of Jesus. You're in desperate need of Jesus. I'm going to close, invite the band to come up, close with a question. How do we do this? How do we become, like Jesus says here, how do we become new wineskins? How does that actually happen? If you go back to verse 15, uh, Jesus uses this phrase again to describe what's going to happen to him. He says that he is going to be taken from them. He will be taken away from them. Again, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus going to the cross. This is when he's lifted up. This is the trajectory of the gospel of Matthew. This is where Jesus is going to continue to point to time and time again that he is the kind of king that if you want to follow him, if you want to come into his kingdom, that the way that he is going to save his people is by going to the cross, by laying down his life, by his brokenness in the place of our brokenness, by his righteousness being granted to us in the place of our unrighteousness. And there's this reality in Matthew's gospel that Jesus will indeed be taken from them. He will be taken away. He will be taken away to the Garden of Gethsemane by the guards. He will be taken away from the garden, and he will be taken to the cross. And on the cross, he will lay down his life. He will breathe his last breath. His body will be broken. His blood will be shed for our sins. And he will be taken from the cross, and he will be taken to the tomb. And his dead body will lay in the tomb for three days. And the Spirit of God will come and it will breathe life into the dead body of Jesus and he will rise. And he will be taken away from the tomb. And for 40 days he will walk with his followers, with his disciples. And then he will be taken away again. He will be taken away by the Spirit ushered back into the presence of God, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he will come again. Revelation 19, he will come again. And for those of us who have faith in Jesus, we will be taken away. We'll be taken away to be with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so this phrase, taken away, that's our answer. 
How do you become new wineskins? His life for your life, his death for your death, his resurrection in your place. We believe that in faith, and we invite Jesus to save us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your grace, that you've given up your life. We thank you for your mercy, that you have shed your blood. We thank you that you have not left us in our brokenness. You have not left us without reminder, but you have given us the gift of the Spirit. You have given us the gift of the church. You've given us the gift of your word. That we might be reminded of all that you have done for us. And so, Spirit of God, for those of us in this room who need to be reminded of your grace, would you remind us right now? For those of us who've been walking with you for some time, for a long time, would you remind us? Would you fill our hearts with the already of the kingdom? But also the not yet. That we would long for you. That we would long for the day that we are with you. That we would long for others to know you. We would long for this broken world to be restored. Would you produce that in us and grant us that? And for those of us who this is new, we are just figuring this thing out and we don't understand. Spirit of God, would you speak right now into our hearts? Would you show us that Jesus is the way? Jesus is the way to restore that which is broken in our lives. And would that realization be so undeniable that we could not reject him, but we would follow him? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen.